Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it shouldn't do it anymore. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. This is Season 3, Episode 5 with Chief Al Aldenberg of the Manchester Police Department. This is a gentleman that I uh, I got to know when I did a brief stint with Manchester back in 2012 through 2014. He was a patrolman then, then he was quickly promoted to sergeant. This was amazing. So without further ado, Chief Al Aldenberg. How you doing, Al? I'm well, T. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this opportunity. I think it's uh, important and uh, yet another way to uh, try to connect with the community, which is uh, vitally important. All right. I appreciate you having me. So, Al, you have a laundry list of credentials, so I'm not even going to attempt to go through all of them by, by memory. So can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us some of your qualifications that got you to this point in nine years? I actually, uh, originally from Massachusetts, believe it or not, uh, I think you knew that. I grew up on the North Shore and worked, uh, started my career at the Essex County Sheriff's Department in Middleton up at the jail uh, in 1994, 1995. I uh, did that for about three years and then came up here to New Hampshire. Started my career as a police officer over in Goffstown, which borders Manchester. Uh, was there from 98 till 2003 and uh, when I came over here to Manchester. So prior to that, well, I still am, um, been in the Massachusetts Army National Guard for 28 years. So I've been uh, fortunate enough to uh, serve my community on both the police side and the military side, and uh, kind of really devoted myself to being a citizen soldier, which I think is uh, critically important and critically vital uh, to our community. So I've been fortunate enough to climb through the ranks in the military um, Currently hold the rank of uh, colonel in the Massachusetts Army National Guard, and a couple deployments: um, Operation Noble Eagle, immediately following 9/11, down at uh, Logan Airport. I was a company commander down there. Uh, shortly thereafter, deployed to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Uzbekistan in 0203. That's when I came back, and that's when I came over here to Manchester PD. Uh, continued on my military career and. Uh, deployed to Iraq in 2009, 2010 as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. So here at the PD, I've been uh, very fortunate. I've had people that have uh, kind of set me up, set me up for success, if you will. Um, you know, I like to think that I worked hard to get to where I am, but it, you need the uh, help of others to uh, to get your career moving and people looking out for you. So I've been fortunate there. So here at the PD, I've, you know, majority of my career was in the patrol division. Um, did a short stint in the detective division, um, sex appliance, sex offender compliance unit. Um, when I made sergeant, I went back to patrol for a couple of years. Uh, from there, I went to the training unit as a sergeant, uh, made lieutenant on the uh, back into patrol for a little bit, um, and then made captain of patrol division for about two and a half years. And then when uh, Chief Capano retired, I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, become the chief. That's unbelievable. And and to people that aren't in police or police work and don't understand, it usually takes a lifetime to reach a level of chief. So Chief Alderberg was a patrolman when I worked up there in 2012 for a short amount of time when you were doing the sex offender registry. Mm -hmm. I, I remember just how daunting of a job that was. At the peak of my career, really. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, you became a patrol sergeant on uh, Midnights. That's usually where you go, right? You go right to Midnights? Yeah, I did uh, 4 to 12 in Midnights for about uh, a little over two years as a patrol supervisor. So, I mean, this is, this is, your ascension has happened very quickly. So since we've talked about that, can you just tell us in, in the military, how many people roughly do you oversee or under your command? Uh, I recently was a brigade commander. Um, I came out of command back in March, and that brigade had uh, upwards to about 700 soldiers. Then um, I've commanded at the battalion level and the company level. Um, so again, I've been fortunate to uh, be in positions of leadership throughout my career and made my share of mistakes and uh, learned from them, I like to think. Um, but also, you know, like to think that I made a positive impact on people that, that uh, were under my command. That's unbelievable. So... Clearly, you're, you're more than qualified to talk about leadership. So, I would hope so. 
So let's talk about, you know, you've been a chief for how long? What's it been, three months now? Uh, it'll be three months on the 20th of this month. All right, yep. so almost three months. Yep. So how are you going to earn the trust of the people that work under your command in, at Manchester PD? Be myself, to be honest with you. Um, I think, you know, some people struggle when they get in a position of supervision or leadership that they think they got to, you know, you got to change a little bit, right? You got to change the way you approach things. But I've been a big believer my whole career, just being being an engaged leader. And a lot of people ask me that, you know, what does that mean? Um, to me, engaged leadership means knowing your people, um, having, you know, sincere and and legitimate conversations with people that work for you, um, and taking an interest in their life, taking an interest in their career, taking an interest in their you know, what's going on in their personal life. Um, you know, this, this job's a grind, right? Um, and this job can eat people up. And I think this day and age, we have to, as leaders, we need to be more tuned into how our people are doing on a daily basis. Um, now, Al, can you give me an example? Like you said something I found was very interesting. You talked about taking an interest in your people's career. So how are you accomplishing that? Well, we're start, starting to try to, you know, for a long time here at Manchester PD, I'll just speak for us, but, you know, we have to create opportunities for our people where we can. You know, historically, opportunities are only created when somebody retires, uh, somebody gets promoted, or somebody resigns. And then it becomes a, um, you know, okay, now we have an opening, now we have an opportunity. So we got to get creative. Um, so how do we create opportunities when uh, beyond those three circumstances I, I mentioned to you. Um, so does that mean, you know, moving people around that necessarily aren't ready to be moved out of a division or, you know, so that we can create opportunities for other people? That's a struggle, right? Because once people get into an assignment, they kind of hold it near and dear and protect it with their life, right? Um, that's just police work in general. But I think there's, there's always an avenue or I'd have to find an avenue to get creative, to great opportunities for that seven, eight, nine, ten year patrolman. Um, because if you don't nowadays, you run the risk of losing those people, that they're going to lose interest in the job, um, their quality of life is going to be diminished. So we need to really, where we can, try to improve the quality of life for all our employees. Because, you know, working 10 years on midnights or patrol there, that's, that's, that's a lot to ask of somebody, especially in this department. Um, and how busy we are. So that's one way I'm trying to do it. Um, and back to that engaged leadership, you know, what makes your people tick? You know, you have to recognize as leader, what are they, you know, are they having a bad day? And recognizing that, hey, you know, Dean's having a bad day, well, why? And, you know, be able to pick them up and, and get them through that day. It's important. Um, I agree. You know, especially this this uh, this job is becoming more and more difficult every day. That's just the reality of it. And to do this job for 25 years, it's asking a lot. It, it definitely is, and and yeah. and I love that you you place an emphasis on career development, mm -hmm. especially for like you said, like sometimes you you have the patrolman like maybe they they're not quite ready to move into a specialized unit or a division at you know right around year five, and they end up maybe. Then they see people that are junior them that, you know, some, let's face it, it's a talent. Sometimes you got to put talent where talent needs to go. And and if someone is more, is ready to go in year three versus somebody who's in year eight, I mean, you you, you have, a you know, you're like a, a sports general manager. You got to put the best team yep. out on the field. So that can be tough, too. You can lose people that way as well. You know, they feel like they're being bypassed. They feel like they don't have value. So it's it's good that you, you're seeing that. And you're recognizing that those offices that, um, that have been a patrol for quite some time still have value and still need to be looked after. And I'll tell you, if you, if your people know that you care, um, I firmly believe that they will do anything they ask of you, that you ask of them. Um, and they may not like it, but if they know that you care and you, that, that you're there with them, um, they'll get behind you. All right. So that being said, and we're talking about the, you know, the ever changing landscape of policing, I just want to show you a quick video of some of the links that some departments are going to to earn the public's trust. 
So stand by. These Orlando police officers are part of a new unit that's designed to make more connections with the community. The idea is to help people see officers as people, not as just the law. The team of officers traveled through Rosemont today, meeting with residents. Before we get started, happy birthday. Thank you. Even singing happy birthday to one woman, a good example of what Orlando police hope their new units will be doing. We want them to see that we're coming in here and actually trying to have a positive relationship with everybody. Officers DeCarlos Hill and Gladys Justiniano are one of OPD's neighborhood patrol units, two officer teams dedicated to particular parts of town, including Ivy Lane, Mercy Drive and Cimarron. They're not here to be the primary responders when a crime happens. Instead, they their goal is to get to know the people who live in the neighborhoods, build trust, let them know that they can come to police for help. What we're trying to do is bridge that gap so that there is a relationship where it's not necessarily trouble that brings us out. Today, they came to Faye Henderson's house, and she says she hopes trust goes both ways. Once they get to know people out here, I think that, you know, they will see them as being awesome citizens. The city's paying for the neighborhood patrol units partially through a more than $1 million federal grant. OPD hopes it'll help address racial inequalities in policing. I love that they're being more present, being more out there helping and just being amongst the, you know, the positive um, relationships versus the negative. Bob Hazen, West 2 News. All right. So that video shows some of the links that some departments are going to, because quite frankly, and I know you know this better than I do, what we're doing now in a lot of circumstances is not working because the world's evolving, police work is evolving, criminals are evolving. So we got to, you know, we got to get, like you said, we got to get creative and try new things. So that video showed what I think is kind of extreme having, you know, people go around singing happy birthday to residents, but hey, you know, if, if that's what works in that jurisdiction, then so be it. What are some of the things that you um, that you that you've seen at MPD that you want to continue? And what are some of the new fresh ideas that you want to bring? I think, well, the community policing philosophy, right? We have a community policing division and we have a pretty rich history in community policing here. Um, we do a lot of things well, but I think community policing needs to become a department wide philosophy, right? And not just the responsibility of one division. Um, but kind of what I'm leaning towards now, we're kind of we're working on reorganize the department to make sure that we're you know structured properly so we're meeting all the needs of the community and kind of being a little try to be a little more progressive um so what i would like to do is take the what we call them area officers that are working in the community policing division so they each have a particular area of the city um i want to take those area officers and embed them in the patrol division um, so then each of those area officers has a sector of the city you know coordinate with the patrol division that they're responsible for so I, to address those quality of life issues um the things that we get you know beat up for lack of a better term beat up every on a daily basis about um but putting those community policing officers in embedded in patrol my hope is that the community policing philosophy becomes um you know prevalent through the whole police department and they see what the community policing guys are doing because i'll be honest with you, the community policing guys do a ton of stuff that you just showed in that video similar stuff and they don't look for credit they don't they do it because it's the right thing to do but kind of bring that mindset and philosophy to the entire entire police department in particular the uh the patrol division a hundred percent and and um and for those that aren't familiar with manchester pd you also have a police athletic league too that's that's an unbelievable building that's uh yeah. it, it, it was rebuilt since when i worked up there can you talk yeah. a little bit more about about that building and, and what that brings to the community yeah i mean COVID has um really kind of put it somewhat of a damper on uh, what pal's trying to do um but officer hardy who's running pal now um and i'm sure you remember ryan um he was got in the line of duty uh, a few years ago um i remember yep and we put him over at pal uh, about six eight months ago and he's really really good after it over there um you know maintaining these programs for the kids giving them an avenue um giving them some kind of outlet whether it's through sports um whatever just a place to 
just a place to come to that's safe and that they're surrounded by people that care for them and that want to see them uh, be successful in life. Uh, so PAL has been a huge success story for us, and we continue to build on it every day. Yeah, I, I, it's a phenomenal program. And 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 what before COVID, what were some of the things you were offering over there? Uh, they do the wrestling, they do the judo, uh, they do the boxing. Um, you know, we're bringing outside coaches. Uh, when Officer Johnny Lavassa was over there, uh, he was doing the boxing. Um, had a lot of success with some kids in the Golden Gloves. Um, some of these young kids teaching them how to how to box the right way and how to you know use that skill properly um, and kind of hone their energy the right way and channel it the right way to into something positive. Um, so that you know doing stuff over there, um, you know, just how to be a good citizen in, in classes about that and, um, you know, classes on life and how to be a better citizen. Yeah, I saw that. Now, now I, I believe that there's also some study type programs they have too there as well, right? You know, helping kids with um, with homework. I know there was a bunch of computers and stuff over yeah, there. Yeah, well. Computers and helping them uh, with the Zoom and uh, making sure they're getting their classwork done. Um, like I said, with COVID, they got created over there. Got a little more creative at PAL to uh, to work around COVID and not use that as an excuse not to uh, make sure that we're staying in touch with these kids. I, I just I always thought that that was just a wonderful way to uh, bring different elements to people's lives. Where you were, you know, obviously the martial arts programs gives you discipline, uh, physical fitness, teaches you self control, emotional intelligence, but you also are helping them learn life skills with you know, be it computer skills giving them uh you know a lot of kids that live in that area that's a tough area where the empal is yeah um where the, you know maybe they don't have computer at home right maybe they don't have ability to write a paper at home and, and and things like that and walking the library is a decent distance away from there if i remember it correctly it's not yep. not like right up the street nope. so it, um, it's just another way to um to build trust with the kids 100 you know? percent. and uh yeah, we're also uh i don't know if you heard of the program uh the value of sport um, I have not. Do you get a chance to check that out? I just signed on with them to be on their uh, their board of directors. It was something that Chief Capano started. Um, it's going to be another avenue to get into the uh, get in with these kids in the middle school um, and middle school through high school and um, using sports as an as another avenue to mentor kids um, and kind of teach them life skills, uh, teach them how to be a good citizen. So once we come out of COVID. Um, that program is going to get up and running in the middle schools and the high schools. Um, so if you get a chance to check that out, value of sport. Value of sport. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Uh, so let's hit the chat. So the chat's lighting up here, as, you, as I'm sure you can see. So we have a wonderful question from, from Heidi. She wants to know, how has the social climate affected the police and community relationships in Manchester? And as chief, how do you navigate that? Well, i got to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, we have our... We have our issues, but I think as a whole, not just Manchester and, and New Hampshire, but I think as New England um, as a whole, I think we've been pretty good compared to other parts of the country. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is the quality of people that we're hiring, um, the training and the open dialogue that was present before all the other things you've seen across the country. Um, you know, we're, we've always been engaged with our community, had relationships that, you know, if you will, you know, help to head off any potential problem. Um, do we have great relationships with every community organization? No. Um, so that's a constant struggle every day to make sure that we're tied in with the right community organizations and that we're holding uh, legitimate conversations with these organizations, you know, whether it be. NAACP, a Multicultural Diversity Council we have here in the city, um, BLM, whatever it may be. Um, we may not always agree, but if we're having a dialogue, at least we're talking. Um, and I Absolutely. think that's, we got to keep that going. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like when we, you know, it seems like the world's kind of forgotten that it's okay to, to agree to disagree at times as long as it's right. done respectfully. Yeah. So you we know, don't always have to try to win. You know, sometimes we can just, you know, as long as we're having an open exchange of information and thought processes, that's really what it's all about. And having thick skin. Yes. And not, be, gone away. not afraid to answer hard questions. And if you don't have the answer, then we'll go find it. Outstanding. 
So on that note, so we talked about earning the community's trust, which is difficult as you talked about, because we all know you can't, you can't be all things to all people. All right. You know, you might do something for one group and, and now they think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. And then another group might feel left out and feel as if you have slighted them. So there's always that balance in act too. But there's a third balance in act that a lot of people out there don't realize as well. In trying to engage the community and trying to make a better relationship between the PD and the community, you also have to consider your rank and file. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to jump to a quick video that shows a chief addressing that exact issue. So stand by. Honolulu Police Commission meeting was the first for new police chief Susan Ballard in that new role. She did a presentation explaining to the commissioners her goals, and one of them is to restore the community's trust. Here's what she told the police union during an earlier meeting. I'm just asking two things from you. I said, one, please ask the officers to be nice. When they go to the public, even though that person is in crisis, that you have to remember that they're still a person and, and treat them like you would if it was your own family member. And to explain to them, don't just take a report and walk out the door. Follow up. Explain to them, this is what's going to happen next. This is how it's going to be done. Because they're the ones that's going to make or break the reputation of this department. The chief also talked about the department eventually using dash cams on the police cars. But that's in the future. Presently, they're focused on their pilot program involving body cameras on certain officers in town. Body cameras. We got them. All right. How long have you had them and how are they working out for you? Uh, a little bit over a year. Uh, it was a program that uh, Chief Capano um, instituted. Cops don't like change, right, Dean? No, it, it, we, we definitely don't. Right. Um, so there was that initial, hey, what are they trying to do here? Um, any PD out there that's trying to institute a body cam program, uh, trust and transparency with your employees is critical. Um, I think we got that. We got we did a pretty good job of that. Uh, depends who you talk to. But we involved. Um, all the stakeholders Chief Capano did from from day one, uh, you know, representations from uh, both unions, um, which you can't involve the entire union, right? But you bring the leadership in and you make them aware of what you're trying to do and mm -hmm. involve them in the writing of the SOP, um, you know, involve them from the, in the program from, from John Street. And that's one way to uh, build and maintain that trust. In the you SOP, know, for those of you that aren't in police work, that's the uh, I'm sorry. standard operating procedure, yes? Yep. And uh, so I think what we found over the last little bit over a year is that we're not, you know, it's not, it's, a, it's not a tool to get police officers in trouble, right? It's not a tool where a sergeant or a supervisor can go lock himself in a room and say, hey, I'm going to watch videos today and see if I can catch a cop doing something wrong. Um, Chief Capano before me made that crystal clear that that, that would not take place. And um, I can sit here today and tell you that that's not taking place. Um, we're using it as a uh, training aid. It's a great training aid. Um, it's really good for field training officers when they have body cam video that they can um, share with their trainee after the call, bring it back to the station or her and say, hey, watch yourself on this video. You know, Tell me how you think you did. Uh, really? How soon is it available, Chief, to them? Live right away. No kidding. Okay, I didn't know that. Yep. So it's all done through the cloud. Uh, they can come back in the station, log on to the computer, you know, or they can play it back on their um, on the device that's on their person and uh, get real time feedback to the training. Uh, secondly, um, you know, somebody may, citizen makes a complaint against an officer. He he or she was rude. He was disrespectful. She did this. He did that. Um, Instead of going through this long drawn out investigation, okay, just show, look at the video. Um, you know, what did the video say? What did the video look like? And then you can, you know, through Wisdom instances, we've we brought a complainant in and said, hey, watch the video with us. 
And then they hit, they find out there's a body cam video and they're like, I've disregarded my complaint. Um, so it's, and it's, I, thirdly, it's building trust, right? Building trust with the community that, hey, we're transparent as we can be. You know, what's more transparent than a body cam? I, I really can't tell you something more. Um, so the officers have grown, I think, for the most part to um, kind of accept it as just another tool in the toolbox that is going to tell our story um, or tell these the entire story. And that was kind of, you know, Chief Capano's thought process was, listen, there's cameras everywhere, right? Everybody's got their own cell phone camera. Everybody's got a camera on their home, on their business, and it's not capturing the entire story. So let's capture the whole thing and uh, explain what really happened. So I, it, so far, it's been very successful, in my opinion. So let me follow up on that because you brought up complaints. How many times have you had people file complaints and then once they find out this body camera footage of it, they immediately want to retract their complaint? I, I, I mean, I don't have the stats in front of me. You don't have that an exact number, Chief. I, I didn't mean to ask it that way. I'm, but I'm, it's sure, like, I'm sure probably thus far in the last year, probably you know, 10 times maybe, um, right? Now what you're doing now, right, is you're lessening the stress on the police officer. So now he doesn't have to go through this long drawn out internal investigation or, or administrative investigation because of a complaint that somebody made against he or her. Um, the body cam's clear, the body cam doesn't lie. Um, and clearly the officer didn't swear at you, didn't use profanity, um, didn't assault you. Um, the things that you you may be alleging are just are not factual. Um, but it's, really, there's no arguing with the body cam. So in that spirit, do you also do you, you let the officer know like, hey, this frivolous complaint came in against you and the body cam, as soon as we mentioned the body cam or showed the body cam video that it kind of went away? Because I'd feel like the, like I know if that was me getting a complaint against me and then I knew that it was frivolous, and then you were able to show them the body cam footage or simply tell them that, hey, there's all, there's footage of this, and people immediately change their mind about filing a complaint. That, that, that's that got to be a feel-good moment for the troops. It is, and a lot of times they don't even, they don't even know that somebody made a complaint against them, right? If, they, if we handle it at the supervisor level and at my level, um, and the officer didn't do anything wrong, really, why add more stress to his or her life? You know, we handled it, we documented it, we do our proper procedure and advise the complainant that their complaint's unfounded, and we will want. So, Chief, I just got to ask you this, you know, so we have a question here. Have you talked about the ability to alter body camera footage in any way? Have you seen that happen? Is that is that a concern of, of the rank and file? I'm not sure how you would alter it. Or the public, you know, the people, you know, because people come up with crazy notions about the things that we are able to do. Um, has anybody mentioned that as being a being a potential problem that hey, you guys are altering the video, or you guys guys might alter this? Not at all. I mean, it goes into uh, it goes the video goes into the cloud once it's downloaded, and um, I'm not sure how you would even have the ability to to alter the video. All right, fair enough. Yep. So we have another question. The chat is lighting up. How do you let your officers know that you offer them that they come to, you know, that they come to leadership if they are having one of those bad days, you know, there's, there can be a bit of mistrust and a stigma if you say, Hey, listen, I could use a little help. So how do you, you know, what, what processes do you have in place? Um, I can tell you from Manchester PD since 2012, we've had a, uh, a critical incident stress management team uh, that's been in place. It's uh, currently comprised of, uh, 25 uh, sworn officers from the rank of officer up to lieutenant. And uh, we also have uh, three civilians that are part of that team. We also have a team psychologist, a uh, team clinician, three team clinicians um, from the vet center, as well as from uh, BFR, which is veterans and first responders. So since 2012, the PDs had that team in place. Um, it's, you know, they, they do a lot of things, but one of the main things they'll do is they, uh, anytime we have a critical incident, um, we do a critical incident debrief that, you know, the chief or or the assistant chief or the captains aren't involved in, um, run by Detective Breton. And 
we'll get outside resources that will come in and, and hold the debrief and give officers the opportunity to speak openly and freely about what they saw or what they witnessed, you know, whether it be a homicide, a fatal motor vehicle accident, a, you know, an investigation involving the death of a child, uh, the things that wear on their minds and their bodies um, and give them the help that they need. Um, so we, you know, that's one way that we're, we're building trust. Um, so what I'm going to be doing here in the very, very near future to piggyback off of uh, that is I'm going to create a call what you want, a wellness or a mental health office uh, that's going to fall directly under uh, me as the chief of police. And that's all they're going to do on a full-time basis um, and offer more training, offer more resources. Um, you know, another, you know, I don't want to say the word forgotten, but a lot of times we forget about the families, our families. Let's call it overlooked. 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 All right. Mm -hmm. um, in creating a, you know, a family support group um, for our families out there that, you know, the loved ones of our police officers that have to burden just as much as, as we do, right? You know, they're offering a sounding board at when a police officer comes home at two in the morning or six o'clock at night and opens up to his loved one, her, her loved one about what they saw or, you know, something heinous that they witnessed. Um, you know, we're seeing it. Um, I got to tell you, Dean, um, you know, if any police are, we can't be afraid as police leaders to talk about mental health. We can't be afraid as police leaders to talk about suicide. Um, if we are, then we're ignoring the problem. And it's real, right? I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the, the, the number of suicides and first responder community, is, it's it's too high. One is too many. Um, and I can tell you that having experienced suicide um, in the military, um, it will cripple an organization. Um, no matter how big or how small your department is, if you have one suicide, um, it's one too many. And it's the, uh, the impacts are going to be uh, far reaching. And they'll be uh, felt for a long, long time. Yeah, it, it, it definitely has a huge ripple effect throughout an agency. There's no doubt about it. So we have another question. So, Chief, can you tell us about the ACERT program? So what exactly is that, and, and how is that working out for MPD? Um, that's a program we've been involved in for um, – correct me, I'm going to remember the acronym. Uh, it's basically dealing with children that are, uh, that are exposed to adverse, um, adverse incidences within, within their home, um, that they are witness to domestic violence, uh, whatever they may have uh, been witness to that we have a program where the officer goes to the call, there's children involved. He documents that in his or her report. Yeah, we fill out a, the officer fills out a form and it goes to a uh, juvenile division when they do their follow-up and they recognize that there's a child involved and we conduct outreach um, to make sure that if programs are um, a very serious crime or, you know, any type of adverse behavior in their home that the police are just offering another resource to uh, help get that child better or children better. Is this above and beyond uh, the normal, like, you know, DCF help to get yes. the children and families help? This is above and beyond that or, or does it, yeah. is it partner with DCF? It's a partnership. Um, and we've had a lot of success with the program uh, through a federal grant mm -hmm. that we're able to uh, keep the program going. Yeah. Oh, and for those of you that don't know, DCF is Division of Children and Families. You know, that is that uh, that is an agency that every police department, I'm sure some fire departments and even medical professionals you are uh, that you partner with when you have these unfortunate circumstances that involve children. So if you didn't know what that was, that's what that is. So again, we're about midway through. If you're just tuning in, this is Difficult Conversations by Supply with Chief Al Aldenberg of Manchester PD. So we have more questions about body cams. It seems to be that's uh, what people want to talk about here. So I'm going to summarize this. This was a two-part um, two message. Basically, this person is one, asking, like, why would any officer not want to have body cams? What, what are some of the reasons that somebody wouldn't want it? That came up. Um, 
you know, why do I, why do I need a body cam? I'm always doing the right thing. No, you probably are. Right. Um, but to, you know, that was kind of a struggle. Um, just trying to convince the officers that this body cam is here to help you. Um, nothing more, nothing less. There's nothing nefarious trying to behind the scenes. Um, we're not trying to, you know, catch you doing something wrong. Um, hey, maybe we catch you doing something right. That's a, that's a good story, right? Um, we're not good at the glass half full, Chief. You know, as police, no, we're, we're, no. that's not really what we do well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that you know, the whole just building trust with the body cam program. Keep going back to that, but um, it's critical and, and having buy-in from everybody. And you're always going to have your your naysayers, right? Every job has them. Every profession has them. Not just police work, but those people are some of my initial naysayers are starting to come around um, because they're starting to see the benefits of it when they go to court, um, when they're testifying and, hey, play the video, right? Let the video speak for my my testimony. Um, and that's part of what I talked about earlier where I said, depending on the, like you talked about, you got to know your officer, depending on the personality of the officer, some people, like I know me personally, I would want to get called in and I'd want you to call me and say, Hey Dean, this person complained on you. We showed them the video of you doing something right. And they scurried away into the night. Yep. Never to be heard from again. Yep. Like that would be a feel good moment for me because that, yep. so you talk about building trust and building legitimacy. Like you coming to me with, with that would help me trust the process a little bit more. Yep. And we do, we have those discussions sometimes with the guys and they just so you know, I did it when I was a patrol captain, you know, guy came in, made this long complaint about an officer and he did this, he did that. So I went and watched a 45 minute video and would not have been further from the truth. So I called the officer in. I said, Hey, I got this complaint. I want to let you know, I watched the video and I said, you couldn't have been up and more professional. And he kind of looked at me, gave me a thumbs up and said, Hey, you know what? I appreciate it boss. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's looking out. Right? I'm, I'm telling you that that is something that, um, as somebody that I, I guess you call me lower management now, you know, as a sergeant, I'm 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 just basically a glorified patrolman. Um, so I'm definitely towards the bottom run as opposed to the top. That would mean the world to me, knowing that um that you were willing to a present this to to whoever was issuing the false complaint, and b that you stood shoulder to shoulder with me when I did the right thing, and uh, and you were able to prove it. So so we have a body cam. Field training question. So, Chief, is there an expectation from your field training supervisor for your field training officers to compile essentially a highlight reel before an officer in training is released for their solo career? No. No. Um, like I said before, they just use it as a training tool as the field training program is going along. Um, we will, from time to time, our training unit will um, – identify a a very good um, example of a body cam um, where officers use exercise proper tactics or interacted um, very well with a member of the community on a call for service and with the officer's permission we may say hey do you mind if we show that in roll call as an example um, so we'll do that but we don't know there's no like you know highlight reel or low light reel if you will um, you never want to use the body cam as a means to uh, embarrass your employees because you're just going to lose that trust. Fair enough. And even and even your trainees. So, for example, let me um, let me ask that same question a different way. So in, an, in a field trainee, trainee, trainer scenario, the field trainer says, hey, listen, this person's not cutting the mustard. Would the body cam footage help to support? Has it been used to help support this person when they say, hey, listen, I don't know if we want to, you know, hire a 20 year problem here, or maybe it's time to cut ties. Is it, is it possible that it would be used for that? Um, we haven't yet. Um, usually there's other, um, we're already having deeper conversations about somebody that's struggling in the field training program before we even have to, um, you know, go to the videos as a means of evidence, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, let's be honest, somebody, he or she knows that hey, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to cut it. Um, they may not cut it here. They may, you know, cut it somewhere else, but we have those conversations, um, 
you know, sometimes too much. Um, but I can tell you that sometimes when a trainee sees a body cam and he realizes that that was me, I didn't already believe they're watching themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's helped to kind of get them on a path to, to being good, mm-hmm. if you will. Absolutely. And just to dub, double down on that, I mean, I've worked at several different departments. Manchester is a hard place to work. It's hard. I mean, the call volume is bananas. I remember leaving roll call during a four to 12 shift in the summer and it'd be double digit calls stacked waiting for you to come out a roll call and, and the handle. Yep. Um, there'd be calls that, that you couldn't get to in an eight hour shift. It was, it was so busy. No, it's uh, yeah, our, our young officers, they're, they're running hard every night, every day, every midnight shift. Um, they come in at the end of the night and you know, they look like they, uh, just, they just boxed for 12 rounds. Um, and that gets me back to my point of, you know, keeping an eye on their, their physical and mental well-being. Because uh, we ask a lot of them uh, day in and day out. And it's not getting any better. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. It, it sounds to me like you've increased your staffing level. Uh, we talked a little bit about that before we, we went live. So you have roughly how many people now working? How many sworn? I'm authorized 257. Uh, come July 1, I'll be authorized 267. Um, but right now I currently have, uh, 16 vacancies, 16 vacancies. Mm-hmm. So that still puts you way ahead of where you, where MPD was when I worked. I, I want to say we were somewhere around 215, 220. Yep. Um, and, probably um, yeah, about 227 when you were here. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. yeah. So the prior chief gets, uh, you know, in our elected officials get, uh, credit for, um, funding us for an additional 30 people over 30, over three years. When you hear about defunding and you know decreasing police budgets, I can tell you that's not happening here, and that's because of the men and women that work here. So that so that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about next is you know the whole kind of we want everybody to do more with less mentality that seems to be running rampant in police work everywhere. So how are you dealing with that? Where maybe. And again, I don't know if this happened or not, but maybe the city's crying poor mouth. We can't give people proper raises. We we can't afford this. We can't afford that program you want to do. Like, how are you balancing that with being able to provide the services that people are expecting? Yeah, well, that that's a struggle every day, right? Because everything becomes a police problem, right? Um, so we're trying to get creative in, you know, what we what we respond to as a police department and what we don't respond to um, and trying to, you know, weed out the things that are just not a police matter. Um, that's always a struggle and finding that balance of, okay, this is what the police should be doing. Um, and this is what the police shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, a perfect example is, you know, four or five years ago here in the city, everybody thought that the homeless problem, was strictly a police problem. Um, and credit to the prior chiefs. Yeah, remember? Right? I, I do remember. I was in two, three, four. So yeah. I remember it well. Yeah. And, you know, credit to prior chiefs to me and um, the current mayor and, you know, kind of changing the, narr- the narrative that, hey, this is a homeless is a community wide problem. The, the police aren't going to solve this. Fire's not going to solve it. We have to haul off the work collaboratively. And yeah, the PD has a, has a role, um, but you know I've said this before. My community policing division has essentially become like a homeless task force, um, and it would takes them away from the other areas of the city that need our attention just as much and deserve it. More importantly, just as much and expect it uh, as they probably should. And but kind of changing that narrative on uh, homeless is is one of the examples and. We're fortunate that we have, uh, you know, some elected officials that are that understand that and see that. Very important. Fair enough. So we have a comment from a, a name that is definitely going to be familiar to you, a recent retiree from MPD. So sometimes it's the belief that the officer will be the second guest or that it will be used as a tool to discipline. In reality, it has many benefits, but the stigma attached to it clouds the reality. Somebody should hire that guy and bring him back. <laughs> so we so we did touch upon that already about sometimes, you know, it, it turns into the boogeyman in the closet. You know, you think it's there's this big problem that's going to, 
you know, it, it, all this negativity attached to it. Because let's face it, if you're a police officer, especially if you have time on, you you basically you live at least half your life in a world of negativity. We deal with people in the worst days of their lives. Mm-hmm. We deal with people in crisis. We deal with people that, you know, that uh, uh, don't like us. Yep. So when you when you live at least half your life in that state of mind and you're in that almost like that fight or flight mindset, you do develop a little bit of paranoia and you do kind of it's almost like a weird conspiracy theory thing that happens sometimes. Oh yeah, we had that here when we brought the party cams in. You know, there was a conspiracy or like I said before that you know, they're trying to do this, they're trying to do that. And you know what? If I was a young patrolman and you were telling me I need needed a body cam, I probably would have reacted the same way, right? And to say that you you wouldn't, um, you're not telling the truth. You're not. That, you know, you'd be sitting at the back of the room like, oh, they want me to put this camera on, you know, what's next? And that's real, right? So as leaders, you got to recognize that that's real. And I've, hear, I've heard people say that, well, if they don't like it, they can leave. Well, right. is that really the solution that as leaders, we're going to say, okay, if you don't like it, just leave and go work somewhere else. No. Um, if you're taking that stance, um, you, you, you probably shouldn't be in a position of leadership. You really shouldn't. Um, it's just, I love that. I love yeah. that you see it that way. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's just, we've all been there. We've all been at the, you know, you know, at the bottom rung, if you will. Um, the least common denominator is the patrolman. Um, but if you don't, have a mindset that your patrol division is your number one priority in the police department, no matter how big or small you are, you are not going to be successful as a chief. Um, you're just not because they they'll turn on you. Yeah, absolutely. I just right. um, recognize it and, and do something about it. Well, I, I, I certainly hope that some that some of your uh, your rank and file will listen to this because that was a little gold nugget that you dropped right there that you're even willing to put yourself back in the place of a patrolman because again it wasn't that long ago for you nine yeah. years ago when I when I first started there in 2012 you you were a patrolman yeah. so it's we're not talking about a million years ago like some people that have been in police work for 40 years so it's so it's it's probably easier that's a benefit for, for your rank and file that they know that you've been there. And clearly you haven't forgotten what it was like um, to be in that, uh, that position. That's, that's fantastic. Um, you know, kudos to you for that. So we do have a question about how do you manage a person with mental health or substance use crisis? We do it through the, uh, through the, the team that I mentioned. Um, but where it, where you got to be very, um, you know, in that team, the, you know, what they can tell me as the chief of police is very limited, um, due to confidentiality. Uh, I don't violate that. The second we violate that confidentiality, um, this team is going to lose, um, complete trust and I won't have people coming forward. Um, I'll be honest with you, Dean. I don't care if I have 30 people lying outside my office and says I need help. Um, then so be it. Right, mm-hmm. then we'll get them help. Um, that means thirty people um, are willing to come forward because they they trust their leadership, they trust the t- team that's in place to help them, um, and they, you know, for lack of a better term, are waving the white flag because um, they need some help. Um, let's be. I mean, come on. Twenty years ago, when I came on the job, and hate to sound like the old guy in the room, but you didn't dare say anything. Right, made you weak. You're you're weak if you spoke. You're, up. you're weak. You're you know what's wrong with you? Um, and that's just those days have passed. And I hear you know, I hear people say you know, I oh, just tell them to suck it up. They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, no, some people aren't going to be fine. And if they need help, get them the help they need. Um, you know where we got to really make sure that when they go through the process and they raise their hand and said I need help, and now we're putting them through the um, you know. Sometimes the abyss of workman's comp, because um, that's a process, right? Mm-hmm. That can be a painful process. But if that if that process becomes bogged down um, in too much bureaucracy and you're overwhelming the person, all right, and you're making it harder and harder every day for them to get help, 
um, you know, they got to lose faith in the system. That's one thing I've been paying attention to lately as to how these things are uh, progressing through the system. So, so chief, let me ask you, so we're down to 10 minutes left. Cause like I promised you, we're, we're going to blink and we're going to be at 50 minutes and here we mm -hmm. are. Let me ask you that same question, but for people not at the PD. So when you deal with people on the street that are in, that are in mental health crisis. We have, what... yeah, we're fortunate here at the, a few years ago, we started a uh, relationship with the greater health, the greater mental health center of, uh, of Manchester. Um, I'm also a board member. Um, and we started this program with critical incident uh, team, critical incident training. Mm -hmm. uh, we put officers through 40 hours of training to become certified as a, uh, to intervene in critical instances where people are uh, suffering from mental health, or mental health crisis or some type of substance abuse crisis. Sometimes they go hand in hand. A lot of times they do. Um, kind of what piggybacked off that was we started this mobile crisis response team where these officers that are certified as uh, CIT officers um, seven days a week. Um, and CIT stands for what, Chief, for people crisis, that are familiar? Crisis, crisis intervention team. Yep. Um, so now we have this mobile crisis response team, which we've been running for about probably four or five years now, um, which is done through our partnership with the uh, Mental Health Center. And so a call for service may come in, um, you know, particular address, subjects in a mental health crisis. This team, along with an officer um, and a clinician and a uh, peer coach, or peer-to-peer -peer from the health center, will actually respond out to the address. Um, so now I'm, I'm taking that root car, if you will, mm -hmm. away from that call and inserting the professionals uh, into the call and freeing up my root car to go do other stuff. And then this team goes and interacts directly with the person and hopefully gets him or her the help they need. In the days of, you probably remember when you were here, the days of, you know, you go to that type of call and, um, you know, hey, get him in an ambulance, get her in an ambulance and just send him off to the hospital. Um, and not really doing the person any good because um, not everybody needs to go to a hospital. Um, that's been a very successful program. Um, the last time I checked the, they had over a ninety percent diversion rate from the uh, from the ERs. Wow! Um, yeah, and getting people the help they need, as opposed to going to an emergency room. That's that's fantastic. That that yeah. you're doing that. And how long's that been in place? Uh, that mobile crisis response team probably about four years. Four years maybe, now. Okay, maybe five. Yep. Uh, great partnership with the uh, mental health center in Manchester. And that's twenty four seven, right? That's not like, hey, you know, Monday through Friday bankers hours, right? It's it's when the time they come out, the times when you really need them to be there. Yep. The team will come out twenty four seven, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. We call them. Uh, they'll come to the PD if we have somebody here. Um, they'll they'll go anywhere, any time of the day. Really, fairly dedicated and devoted people. That's a great program that you have in yep. place there. So we're down to about five, uh, six minutes left. So let's let's talk about something pleasant. So we have a great question from Heather. Heather wants to know or says that Manchester often gets a bad rap, but we all know how great the Queen City is. What's your favorite thing about the city of Manchester? The people, um, the diversity within our community, um, and just the um, the kind of the the ability to always, always persevere um, and the ability of our community to come together when um, things are not well or things are going, you know, not in a positive direction, but we find a way to bring the right people together to, uh, to solve the problem. Outstanding. Now, yeah. I want to answer that question too. All right. Again, being a, being an MPD alumni there. So one of my favorite things about Manchester, I got to say a couple things. Definitely the, the the people, like the diversity and how you can be in one neighborhood and you'll have million-dollar homes. A lot of people don't realize that Manchester still has million-dollar homes and, mm -hmm. and has that section. But then you can be in the inner city a couple minutes later, and you're dealing with all kinds of great people. That maybe they're down on their luck. Yep. Or maybe they are just in a, in a rough circumstance. You know, like I, I, I brought up uh, Unit 234 a little bit earlier. That's a, that, that, that's a, that's the a, 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 a route in in Manchester PD that's a sound to like the inner city part of the city. I don't know if you still have that or not, but it was when I was there. We do. 
And part of our duties was we were assigned to the soup kitchen for an hour every shift. It was it was mandatory. There's no wiggle room with that at all. In fact, we got in trouble for making like we made an arrest once, and we got we 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 got in trouble for making an arrest when we were supposed to be at the soup kitchen, a felony arrest. But um, that's how serious that it was taken there. So I I love that aspect of it. I loved interacting with all the different people. And again, when you're out of the, your radio car and you're on a bike or you're on a walk and talk. Um, it just allows people in the community to see you in a completely different way. It allows you to see them in a different way, and you get to see the humanity in one another that way. I'm bringing the bikes back, actually. Are you really? It's 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 an amazing tool for for police work. You know, it's yep. great. It's great for you know a number of tactical deployments that I won't necessarily talk about now. But yep. it also is great for community policing too. It it just naturally brings out community policing if you have people that are accessible and not in a radio car going from call to call. Um, I'll, I'll shift long. And of course the food too. There's a lot of great places to eat in Manchester too. There are. That sounds, uh, you can get any, just about anything you want to eat downtown. So and every time we're in New Hampshire, we, we always make sure that we stop by and, uh, you know, either on the way up or the way down through Manchester and, uh, and, and grab some food. So chief, it's been awesome having you on here. Can you talk a little bit about what you want to, about, you know, really quick about what you're looking to do in your next year or so? And how can people follow you? And how can people just check in with you to um, see? Yeah, I'm learning, I'm learning to uh, navigate my way around the social media. Um, I'm not very social media savvy, I'll admit that. So, uh, you know, I am on um, I am on Twitter, um, and the department has a Facebook page. Uh, you can follow us on there, uh, ManchesterNH.gov, uh, or Manchester New Hampshire Police on Facebook, um, and Really, the next year for me is about, um, you know, like I said before, reorganize the department in a way that we're uh, best serving the community um, and best serving not only the needs of the community, but the needs of our officers uh, and focusing on, um, you know, investing on our people, putting, uh, building re those enduring relationships with our community. Um, I got a couple of projects going on right now that's going to uh, hopefully you know, build better partnerships in the community and make sure we're hitting all the uh, the right people and the right organizations and that we're doing it in a uh, organized manner. Um, that's something we're working on now. Um, I just want to uh, just want to be happy at doing this job, to be honest with you. I want to uh, I want to leave this department better than how I found it. And I think every leader needs to do that. Um, we're not perfect. I'll be the first to admit that. Um, but we're pretty good. Um, we do a lot of things very, very well, and we're uh, we're invested in this community, and we're looking to make uh, you know Manchester a um, an attractive place for people to come to to uh, to live, to work, and to uh, you know enjoy the entertainment. Well said, well said, folks. If you have any questions for Chief Aldenberg, I will put I will put uh, the best email to get in touch with him in the in the comments at the at the conclusion of this. Um, again, this is. Difficult conversations by Supply the Why. We are reaching out to anybody out there that wants to have a difficult conversation and wants to gain a better understanding of a given circumstance. So please like, share, and subscribe. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And we also have podcasts on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Chief, one last question, really important question, probably the most important one of the night. I know it's coming. So I hear there's a big football game tonight. Yeah. I don't know. Who do you like, Ohio State or Alabama? I gotta be loyal. I mean, uh, we have a guy who used to work here. His brother's the head coach um, of Ohio State, um, so a lot of respect for him and the uh, Day family. Uh, we're gonna go with Ohio State. You're gonna go Ohio State? Yeah. All right, Ohio State. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna roll with you, and I'm gonna go with Ohio State with the upset tonight. I'm gonna go. 36-28, Ohio State. You had it here first. 21-3. 21-3, low-scoring defensive battle. I don't know. I don't know anything about college football. <laughs> I'm going to go 21-3. <laughs> so you got a lot of thanks here. So, again, folks, thanks for tuning in. This has been Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. Every Monday night, we're going to have new guests on. We're going to hit fresh new topics. Please like, subscribe, and share. We're only getting started. So have a great night, everybody. Hashtag supply the why.